Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is the Christmas edition of Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's shows, older fathers, hydrogen peroxide, and PCBs. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Andrew Newberg, who will discuss the biology of our beliefs. Also, we'll find out what prostaglandins are. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of Santa Claus. The voice of Santa Claus. Wow, where's that ho, ho, ho? It's ho, ho magic is what it is, this <laughs> holiday season. Can you feel it? I think so. I'm about to hibernate. <laughs> <laughs> Buckling down for the winter. Well, speaking of hibernation, here's our animal of the week. It's it's the animal fact of the week. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was crazy. And hopefully it has something to do with reindeer, maybe? Bears. Okay, close enough. So, Charles, uh, how long can you uh, hold off from peeing? Well, I need to go right now, so as long as the show lasts, I suppose. Oh, you can't do it for like five or six months? <laughs> There's a lot of things that I've gone with that for five or six months, but peeing, not one of them. Turns out bears can hold off for five or six months because they can hibernate all that time. Right. Well, I, I imagine their metabolism and everything slows down such that they're not producing a lot of waste. Right. Yeah, I've always wondered what happens if you disturb them while they're sleeping. Do they wake up and just start eating you up? Or <laughs> are they still so groggy that, you know, you can just take them down? If you've ever woken up an angry bear. <laughs> <laughs> not something you should do, I guess. So, Charles, do you have any uh, Christmas wishes this year? Well, world peace. World peace for you and for me and the entire human race, right? right. Yeah, what happened to that guy? I'm not sure. <laughs> you don't have kids soon? I can barely take care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> or we are still kids, right? Uh, so it turns out there's more evidence that uh, men have a biological clock. I thought men could uh, procreate up till death, almost. <laughs> uh, they can, but the quality seems to go down progressively as you get older. And the latest research shows that men who are 40 and older, when they have kids, they have a significant higher risk of developing autism, about six times as much than men who have kids before they're 30. Is this because the production of the sperm is not as efficient and there's DNA damage going on? Probably. I'm sure there's some yeah. degradation in our right. systems as we get older. So this is the latest evidence. Of course, detection and medicine has improved, but I think statistically this shows that there is overall negative effect for us. So have kids when you're, uh, what, 15? <laughs> is that the idea? <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that what they used to do back in the days? Yeah, well, I mean, people... And then we died by the time we were 40? Or... or 30 almost, <laughs> I think. <laughs> so we're our second life then, huh? Yeah, I, I guess that's why people don't really know what to do after 30. They should be dead by now. <laughs> Reminded of this joke by Paula Poundstone where uh, she asks, do you ever wonder why older people ask children what they want to be when they grow up? It's because they're looking for ideas. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm out of ideas, but uh, this Christmas that's the only thing I'm wishing for. Very good. <laughs> Okay, well, do you plan to eat a lot of uh, cookies and cakes and all kinds of stuff this Christmas holiday? I've given up on carbs. Or maybe they've given up on me. I'm not sure what the deal is. Uh, well, I think carbs have given up on a lot of things, uh, and hopefully they'll be giving up on acrylamide. Acrylamide? You can eat that too? No, actually you can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bad thing. It's it's actually probably a carcinogen and more than likely a neurotoxin. Like one of the uh, components they use for plastic? Actually quite nasty for you. So. <laughs> 
And it turns out it's actually produced by a process called the Mallard reaction when you're heating carbohydrates uh, to that golden brown deliciousness. So that caramelness is really not that good for you, huh? Well, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of bad stuff in that compounds there. But this was actually found in 2002 where a lot of baked goods actually have some proportion of acrylamide uh-huh. just because of this natural chemical process that goes on. Right. I, I think I heard somewhere that the first moment you open an oven, that really fresh uh, baked bread smell, apparently that's not healthy. <laughs> Most things that seem good for you are actually slowly killing you. Like <laughs> life. There's <laughs> <laughs> been a lot of uh, interest in this, trying to cut down the amount of acrylamide in baked foods. Right. And there's a new technique using a bacterial enzyme called asparaginase. Wow, that sounds like something you get from asparagus, right? <laughs> it's actually to try and break up a precursor molecule called asparagine, which gets converted to acrylamide during this uh, reaction. And so if you add in the asparaginase, they're thinking, well, if you don't have any asparagine, then uh, you're good. Right. It's one of many possible techniques. Right now, the enzyme is pretty expensive, and it's not approved by the FDA for food use, but it is one possibility for cutting down the amount of acrylamide in your baked goods. So this is a very fascinating work. It was actually published in a recent edition of Nature News. So have you been flying a lot lately, Charles? And boy, are my arms tired. And you couldn't carry any liquids with you either, right? (laughs) So it turns out on top of the list of possible liquids that terrorists might harbor are peroxides and acetone. Peroxides are certainly uh, very highly reactive. A chemist here, Christopher Chang, here at UC Berkeley's Department of Chemistry, he's developed a sensor based on a dye, fluorescein. And this is commonly used for biological research where they can track uh, certain reactions happening in a cell. Uh, one of their interests is to look at how uh, radicals and peroxides form in your body so you can see if there's any oxidative stress. Now, what they've been able to do with, by um, altering the use of this dye is that they can use it to detect very small concentrations of peroxides in the environment. And so this could be a really useful way to see if there's any peroxides in your luggage. or. What about just the peroxide I'm carrying to keep my hair blonde? <laughs> <laughs> your so, hair could be explosive. So anyways, this could be a very promising way to deter um, future terrorists. Excellent. All right, and finally, how effective are your vaccines? I think I'm overdosed on the hepatitis stuff. I had like a couple of boosters and uh, suddenly I'm just having these high accounts of the uh, antibody. Uh, antibody. Well, that's that's good. So you're protected against hepatitis B. <laughs> and it's good because I have a vial of it right here. <laughs> but good thing it didn't come with polychlorinated biphenyls. PCBs. PCBs, yes. Yeah, that's carcinogen, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it is. And uh, among other things, apparently it reduces the efficacy of vaccines during childhood. Do they spike this in to um, make it not so strong or something <laughs> so that they can, you can come back for seconds? A cagey ploy by the drug companies there, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's intentional. <laughs> you know, so PCBs are used in the, a lot of manufacturing processes, right, and right. so they're in the environment. Right. The idea is that just by having them around could reduce any efficacy of vaccines that currently exist. Mm-hmm. So caution needs to be taken to make sure, first of all, that they're not being exposed to PCBs just generally, <laughs> right. but especially during childhood where it can affect all kinds of processes. Yeah. So is there any way to uh, sequester or somehow filter out the PCB from the vaccines? Well, it's not really the PCB in the vaccine itself. It's just you're getting a vaccination and then there's being exposed to PCBs. Oh, I see. You just have to get out of that environment if possible. Uh, This is a very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of PLOS Medicine. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Andrew Newberg will join us to discuss the biology of our beliefs. So stay tuned. 
Welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, our beliefs shape all aspects of our lives, from as trivial as the types of clothes we wear to our deep-seated political and religious views. So strong are our beliefs that we often are willing to die for them. But why do we believe what we believe, and how does the biology of our brain influence our beliefs? These are questions posed in the new book by Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Newberg is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Radiology, Psychology, and Religious Studies. His research focuses on the association of brain function and mental states involved with religious or mystical experiences. An author of several books and articles, including Why God Won't Go Away, his new book, Why We Believe What We Believe, examines the biological basis for our beliefs. Dr. Newberg, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, Thank you for having me on your program. Beliefs in one sense are highly emotional or irrationally derived thoughts, what some may uh, see is at odds with a rational brain. How can our brains give rise to these uh, divergent operations? The, the way the brain works is that it gives us such a full range of different ways of dealing with our world, and, and we really need all these different ways. We need creative ways of looking at the world, which sometimes have to take us in different ways in terms of thinking about. Uh, we need to be able to reduce things as, as carefully as we can to try to understand them, and that's what we do in science. And, of course, we have our emotions, which are so critical for social interactions and for really being able to evaluate whether things are good or bad or how we feel about them. And when you put all of that together into the mix, you get such a diverse array of beliefs that range from the religious and spiritual, which are obviously at the top when people think about beliefs themselves. But as you mentioned in the introduction, beliefs really are a part of every aspect of our lives. Our whole world is shaped by our beliefs, and they could be political beliefs and Uh, social beliefs, how we should act towards other people, moral beliefs, and so forth. And because each of us has a brain that's developed in certain ways and has a slightly different biology but also a slightly different environment that we grew up in, we really can create just a huge diversity of different ways of thinking about our world and different ways of believing. What are the various factors that go into how we form our beliefs? The way we tended to look at it in terms of the research that we've done, there seem to be four primary elements that go into almost all of our beliefs. And all of them are also subject to a lot of influence and potentially flaws and restrictions. So on one hand, we have our perceptions, how we view the world. And of course, our brain misses a lot of what is out there in the world. And when we do actually perceive certain things, our brain actually can actually fix our perceptions to try to make seem to make more sense to us. So our perceptions are one part of our belief. And that, you know, people always say seeing is believing. So it's clearly a very critical part of how we think about our world. Then we bring our our cognitive processes, how the brain looks at the world and analyzes it. And we can do it in so many different ways. We can look at it to see causality in the world. We can look at it to find opposites, right and wrong, good and bad, and so forth. And then we have our emotional responses that are very critical to our beliefs because they guide our decision-making in terms of what beliefs to hold. And then once we have beliefs, as is well known in the world today, we have a tremendous amount of emotional support that goes into it. We really want to uphold our beliefs as strongly as we can, and sometimes to the extent that we're willing to go to war or fight somebody for it. And then finally, social influences. A lot of our beliefs come from our parents. A lot of our religious beliefs come from our parents, but how we think about how we should behave comes from them. And then, of course, our peers. And as we grow up and, and live our lives, the people that we interact with often can very heavily sway what we think and how we feel even though a lot of us like to think that we're making decisions all by ourselves, the evidence really suggests that our brain is, is heavily influenced by what other people think, even when we think something to the contrary. Hmm. The, all these factors, obviously, are interacting somehow in the brain. What, what parts of them do you feel are important? 
Well, I think that the amazing thing about how the brain works is that it really works all together. Even though you can talk about emotions or you can talk about some specific brain cognition function that comes from a particular part of the brain, uh, I always like to think of the brain as working in a very integrated way. We really have to think about all the different parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that underlie our emotional responses, part of the brain called the limbic system. That's very involved in the emotional aspects of beliefs. Our higher cognitive processes that occur in the brain's cortex, the largest part of our brain and the, and the most evolved part in humans, that enables us to think things through in language and abstract thought and, and make our decisions. So ultimately, I, I don't think there is one part of our brain that really helps us with beliefs even more so than any other. It really depends on the individual belief itself and the individual person as to which factors ultimately weigh in more for a particular belief. And also it changes as we get older. Early on, we might be very heavily biased by our perceptions and our emotions. And then as we get older and we get into college and so forth, our cognitive processes start to come into play more and more. Uh, this is interesting because, uh, you know, many writers uh, like V.S. Ramachandran and Oliver Sacks, they put a high implication, for example, on the temporal load for in religious-type beliefs. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is essential for uh, such beliefs, or do you think it's, again, distributed across the brain? Well, the temporal lobe is certainly very, very important, as are a number of other areas. The temporal lobes do actually house that emotional part of the brain, so that's very important in terms of the emotional content that we feel. It's also very involved in our memories and our ability to, to process information. And as you pointed out, uh, a number of people have looked at the temporal lobes as being related to religious experiences because when people have abnormalities in the temporal lobe, they have seizures in the temporal lobe, or if you stimulate the temporal lobe, you get some very unusual experiences that can feel very spiritual-like. The argument, again, that I've tried to make, though, is that while the temporal lobes are important, it's certainly far from the only thing. And when you think about religion as a concept and spirituality, these are such huge concepts, and they're so diverse and rich in their and the different expressions that they have, that I think it becomes very difficult to try to nail it down to just one part of the brain. You know, it depends on what aspect of religion or spirituality you're talking about, and clearly the emotional parts might be in, in the emotional part of the brain, but when we have a feeling of connectedness or a feeling of ultimate cause in the world or the fundamental cause of all things, these could occur in many other places in the brain that all come together ultimately to create our religious and spiritual beliefs. Hmm. So do you think it's possible that different brain areas and different people could give rise to the same types of experiences? Well, this is where I think a lot of the research is, is, mm. is headed. I mean, some of the research that we talk about in our book, some of the new work that we've done using brain imaging studies to explore different types of practices and different types of experiences that people have, what we're finding are both similarities and differences across traditions and across cultures. Mm. For some types of practices like meditation and prayer, there are similar changes in the brain, in particular, for example, the, the frontal lobe, which helps to mediate our attention and helps us to focus our mind on certain things. So if you're focused on a prayer, then you activate that attention-focusing part of the brain. When you have practices where a person feels a loss of their sense of self and a sense of spacelessness and timelessness, which is frequently described in religious and spiritual experiences, we think that it has to do a lot with a part of the brain called the parietal lobe that normally takes our sensory information and gives us our sense of self and helps to orient that self in the world. So if that part is not working the way it normally does, it can create very unusual illusions and, and, and feelings about what the body is doing, what the self is doing. And it could be slightly different for each individual person, how they ultimately interpret those experiences, 
and where the biology is, it always could be a little bit different. And as we advance our technologies, we'll hopefully get a little bit better to answering that kind of question. Where are the similarities? Where are the differences? And how do we figure out, are all spiritual and religious experiences and ideas ultimately fundamentally similar, or are they fundamentally distinct? And, and that's something that we just don't know yet. Hmm. In some of your work, you talk about constructive and destructive beliefs. Is there any indication yet that those might be uh, mediated by different parts of the brain? Well, one of the ways in which we really talk about constructive and destructive beliefs I think has to do a lot with our emotional responses. Uh, when you talk about constructive and destructive beliefs for an individual person, the destructive ones tend to be the ones that elicit a stress response. They cause us to feel more anxious. We might feel symptoms in our body. We might feel our heart beating, our stomach starting to churn. You know, we get that kind of jittery feeling. And this is mediated in large part by our emotional parts of the brain, the limbic system and the parts that control how our emotions are ultimately sent out through the whole body. And that can have very destructive short-term and long-term consequences on a person. I mean, if you know that classic type A personality who's always anxious and always kind of jittery, that can lead to increases in heart disease and, and those kinds of problems. The other issue, which is a little bit less clear, is when people have destructive feelings about other people. So if somebody is ultimately a criminal or someone engages in a terrorist action where they try to really harm other people, that on one hand is a very destructive act, at least as far as other people are considered. And the question is, you know, what about our beliefs ultimately leads us down that path? And certainly there are many examples of very, very religious individuals on one hand who are incredibly compassionate, loving and warm and open to other ideas and other very religious individuals who are willing to you know, be antagonistic, aggressive and violent towards other people. And we just don't know right now what the real difference is between those two different kinds of sets of beliefs. Is it the individual? Is it the doctrine? Is it the biology of the person? And I think that we're just at the beginning of trying to understand that a little bit more and understand that in many ways, it, written into all of our biology, is the ability to have both the destructive as well as the constructive approaches to our beliefs. We are all capable of doing immoral things, and we're all capable of doing moral things. And again, we get into this uh, in much more detail in, in the book itself, where we try to explore how those different types of beliefs, the constructive and the destructive ones, come about, how we can identify them, and ultimately how we can try to change negative beliefs and turn it into something that's more positive and more constructive. The explanation for most uh, features in biology, of course, is that it has some selective advantage. What is the selective advantage for having deeply held beliefs? Well, I, I think that there's a couple of answers to that. Uh, for, from the perspective of beliefs themselves, part of what we're arguing in the book is that, that we have no choice but to believe. Our brain is, we're always trapped within our own brain. We never can really step outside of ourselves and see what is actually out there. So everything that we think about the world is a belief system. And hence, when we talk about religious and spiritual beliefs, these are just very, very strong types of belief systems that help us to understand our world, to help us to create social cohesion and social bond, help us to develop a sense of morals. And it can be, for those kinds of purposes, of course, as with many things in the human world, it can also lead towards very terrible things. It's just like science and technology can lead to great stuff, but it can also lead to the atomic bomb and other types of weapons. So what we're really trying to explore here is how do we ultimately use them for the positive or the negative and really try to make that differentiation. But it does seem to be something that's within all of us. And when it is used positively, it can be very adaptive. It really does help us. But sometimes we also just have to be aware 
of the downsides of that, the negative sides, to, to try to avoid that. And hopefully by making it more apparent to people where those negative sides can come in, we can try to avoid that in the future. Indeed, indeed. Uh, are you very religious yourself, or how did you come to be interested in this uh, issue? Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily define myself as particularly religious. Uh, to me, a lot of the whole approach to these kinds of questions has been a journey for myself to really try to explore. Ever since I was very young, I was always asking a lot of questions about how we understood reality and how we made some sense about our world, uh, how we knew what was right and wrong and so forth. Uh, where did that information come from? And as I went through my own training, even though, again, I wasn't very religious in any particular tradition, I began to explore a lot of different approaches, a lot of different perspectives, both scientific and philosophical and religious, to try and understand where they all fit in. And where I guess I've ended up, at least at the moment, is to just try to be open-minded about what all the different perspectives have to say. To me, each of them has a great deal of value, and each of them has something important to say about our world. We need to really look at them, see where the similarities are, where the, with the areas where they can be integrated better, where the areas are where they can't be integrated, and try to, to work the best that we can to just making all of our lives better. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate goal here, which is how do we kind of improve on the overall human condition in the human world. And I think that when you see spirituality and science, is, I think are probably two of the most powerful forces that have affected human history and continue to affect it to this day, we really need to understand them both as well as we can and try to find how each of them might be able to benefit from a mutual dialogue between them. Well, I certainly agree. That's a very laudable goal. And Thank you. I, I think it's so important that we all try to do it the best we can, and I, I tend to have an idealistic bent in the end, and I certainly hope that it leads to positive things for myself for, and for everyone else. Well, Dr. Newberg, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and talking about your book, Why We Believe What We Believe. Well, thank you very much for having me on your program. And you were just listening to Professor Andrew Newberg discussing the biology of our beliefs. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Well, I guess it would be nice. game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Believe It or Not. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were to occur, would you believe it or not? Dr. Newberg, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? Sure. Okay, here we go. Believe it or not, uh, item number one, Paris Hilton wins the Dramatic Actress Award from the Academy. <laughs> Probably would not believe that. <laughs> uh, I have to give a reason for that. <laughs> she doesn't quite strike me as, as the actress type, although you know she certainly has been able to do a lot of different things, so I, I certainly wouldn't put anything past her, but I, I just don't see the Academy ultimately giving in to 
the way she sort of runs things in her own life, and I think it's kind of unlikely to see that happen. <laughs> okay, uh, number two, Tiger Woods breaks the all-time major record. I, I certainly would believe that. Certainly well on his way there already, and the way he plays, it's really phenomenal to watch somebody of that kind of caliber be able to play. So that certainly would not be of any surprise to me. Uh, uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, memoir is discovered entitled Cigar is Just a Cigar. <laughs> I don't know if I would believe that, but um, <laughs> certainly it sounds very amusing as, an op- as a possibility. <laughs> certainly he's had a lot of interest in sexuality and what things meant, but I don't think he would have pushed it quite that far. Okay. Uh, uh, number four, Bill Gates becomes the first man on Mars. Uh, I believe that. Uh, you know, Well, actually, it'd probably be more Paul Allen, I think. He's the one who seems to be more interested in spaceflight and so forth. But, um, you know, Bill Gates is one of those people who certainly has the resources and the capability to do anything. So it wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him to do that. I don't know if that's something that he has a particular interest in. But if he doesn't go, I, I'm sure Paul Allen would be volunteering to go. Right. Well, uh, you know, there's a whole new market for Microsoft products, I think. Out that's there. true. That's true. Okay, and finally, number five, our perennial favorite, uh, George Bush is elected most popular president ever. <laughs> well, I, I think the polls already disprove that. <laughs> so I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but maybe one of his descendants, who is also named George Bush, might come along and maybe be doing a little bit more popular of a job. So, okay. uh, But I, I think I would have a hard time believing that, that would happen anytime soon. Uh, I think a lot of people would, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Dr. Newberg, I do want to thank you stick around and playing our game and of course talking about your book uh, why we believe what we believe uh, well thanks very much for having me on your program yeah, it was certainly our pleasure thank you very much thank you mr anderson trying to escape so quickly are those prostaglandins helping well vasodilation is key to the matrix Okay, now here is the Tokyo Kid with uh, this week's question of the week. What is a schistosomiasis? It's a real mouthful for this word, and I have a so hard time to say it, but uh, finally I say it, and now I want to know what it uh, means. So if you know what it means, email us at grooks uh, at hotmail.com. Yeah, you won't do anything, but at least you'll be healthy. And that's all for our Christmas edition of Berkeley Grohawks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grohawks, you can email us at grohawks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grohawks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you see us on the web at www.grohawks.net. Have a very Merry Christmas and stay tuned for more music.